want to turn now to introducing Professor Jenny Gore from Newcastle. I've known Jenny for many, many years. Um, my first memory of Jenny is on a plane going to AERA with a young baby many, many moons ago, walking up and down the aisles. And the, my point being that Jenny has been actively res, active in very high-quality research that's been internationally regarded for a long period of time. And so Jenny brings to us great wisdom around the evidence that we need to address all of the issues that are embedded in teacher quality. Jenny's been a Dean of Education, so she knows how busy we are and the multiple agendas that we do have. But she has a lot to say to us, I believe, about taking teacher education into the future. And it is very much based on the evidence that she's collected over a long period of time. Jenny is a great advocate for teachers and teacher educators. So I feel really privileged today to invite you to the podium, Jenny, and share some of that wisdom with us. Would you please make Jenny go welcome? Thank you. Thanks very much. And it is nice to be back among deans. I must say I haven't really missed some aspects of the job too much, but um, I, I certainly um, value being in this forum and uh, it's nice to see lots of familiar faces. At a certain level, I'm tired of the lists, endless lists of recommendations for what we should be doing. Um, they're everywhere. They're in academia, they're in government, they're in the media. Um, our vice-chancellors even are very articulate, as Barney just demonstrated, about what we should be doing. Um, and that's not to devalue some of the important insights that come from those words of wisdom. But my focus, um, particularly over the last uh, 10 to 15 years of research, has been on how, how we might go about putting into place some of these recommendations for improving teaching or building better relationships with school or doing better research translation and so on. Unlike Barney, who uh, I suppose presented a very well-crafted speech, I'm going to be showing you a lot of slides with a lot of evidence and then talking um, with you about how we might put that into practice. I'm very happy to take interruptions, um, comments, challenges along the way, uh, but hopefully I'll finish this in time for some group discussion and some questions um, before we break for, is it lunch at the end of this? Yeah. So here we go, and um, you know I, I'm getting a bit of a reputation for trying to do 85 slides in 60 minutes, but um, I'm going to be drawing from a number of different research projects as well, and uh, let's see how this uh, takes us. I think one of the first things to acknowledge is that we're operating within this really complex field of teacher professional learning, whether we're talking about pre-service or in-service professional learning. It's meant to work very simply like this. We design approaches to teacher development, whether they're teacher ed programs or continuing professional development kinds of activities. We put in place certain processes. The ones that are up there are more about the in-service rather than the pre-service. And it's meant to have an impact. That's why we do all this stuff. And mostly it's meant to impact on teacher learning. And if we impact on teacher learning, that's meant to impact on teaching practice. And if we impact on teaching practice, that's going to impact on student outcomes. That's the simple logic of the work we do, the enterprise we undertake. But the big question mark is there because there's actually very little evidence of the clear 
relationships along this pathway. And it's, I suppose, where my own research has, has become most closely positioned, trying to, to look at how can we design powerful forms of teacher development that do have those kinds of impacts on teaching practice, teachers' understanding that can then impact on student outcomes, including more equitable outcomes. We see this kind of statement that, that there's unequivocal evidence that the quality of teaching is the most significant in-school factor affecting student outcomes. And as Linda Graham uh, said not too long ago, let me see if I've got it right here at my fingertips, her precise words, the, that concerns about quality teaching have, her words, morphed into the odious mantra of teacher quality. So concerns about the quality of teaching have morphed into this mantra about teacher quality. And even though it might seem a semantic difference at one level, I think it's a really significant difference, different focus um, if we're talking about how we improve the quality of teaching rather than the quality of teachers. I'll come back to that more later. We also have statements like this from AITSL's National Teacher Performance and Development Framework that every teacher every year in every school should receive regular effective and constructive feedback and opportunities to identify areas for development. And the question is, how is that to happen? How do we do it now? What do we have in this space for doing this in ways that are meaningful and supportive? We have people like Elizabeth Stiddy, who has worked with Richard Elmore on instructional rounds, identifying a big part of the problem. We can have 10 teachers from the same district watching a 15-minute excerpt of a, a lesson and come up with everything from high praise to excoriation, tearing it to shreds. Because, as they say, gaining an explicit and widely held view of what constitutes good teaching and learning is a first step to scaling up quality. And we don't have that. I think it's one of our biggest failings in teacher education is we don't have a commonly held view about what's good teaching within our faculties, let alone between faculties. And so it makes it really hard if we're teaching our uh, student teachers to become good teachers. What underpins that? How do we articulate that? My work's situated there. Um, and Deborah Ball from the US uh, says that politely refraining from critique and challenge, teachers have no forum for debating and improving their understandings to the extent that teaching remains a smorgasbord of alternatives with no real sense of community. There's no basis for comparing or choosing among alternatives, no basis for real or helpful debate. This lack impedes the capacity to grow. Now, we do have some statements of quality. We have the standards, and they, they give us standards which is great. And these are very similar to standards around the world, as we know. But they lack specificity. So when we look at, for instance, some of the standards that are most closely aligned with classroom practice, or classroom instruction, if you want to use the North American term, what we see is uh, really important statements of standards, but no detail. We look at words like, well, uh, well is that? Well, sorry, I've just dropped my glasses. I'll just pick them up. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, Well-structured, <laughs> that's the word. Um, productive learning, exemplary practice. Who's to define these things and judge these things? Effective teaching strategies. We don't have a way of differentiating. We certainly don't have an agreed way of differentiating. For a lot of us, you know, it's a gut-level thing. You go into a classroom, you watch a student teacher, and you say, well, this is a good one. <laughs> 
you know, and, and teachers tell us, you know, I can't wait to employ this young person in my own school. We've got an opening. And then we walk into other classrooms and we, we know something's wrong, but we can't even necessarily articulate it very well. And I still remember one of my um, early graduates, I was doing a little project on the first year of teaching, and he was teaching in a very difficult school in the northwest of New South Wales. And he said um, that he'd had a mentor teacher come into his classroom and watch him once. This was October, by the way. Um, and he started teaching at the beginning of the school year, and the advice he'd been given was to move around the classroom more. Now, that's so limited in terms of uh, helping a beginning teacher. All of this is located within this huge uh, push to improve the quality of teaching. It's a global push. And it's an understandable push because there are concerns, uh, real concerns. I mean, we talk mainly about PISA results and things like that, but when we look at developing countries where they're struggling just to get enough people into teaching and so on, there are, there are enormous problems. Um, I wouldn't for a minute discount that. There are three main strategies that have been proposed at the moment. The first one is to recruit better quality teachers, and that's a pretty powerful one at the moment. For instance, I'll come back to that other slide. The OECD says improving the efficiency and equity of schooling depends on ensuring that competent people want to work as teachers and that their teaching is of high quality. Fair enough. I don't think we'd argue with that. Of course, in Australia, we get these kinds of statements as well that are all about the importance of lifting the quality of teachers. So it's getting the right people into teaching. Now, I don't have much time to go into this, but um, we've just completed a four-year longitudinal study of student aspirations. So we've looked at students from year three to 12 and what, pretty much asked them what their educational intentions are. Do they plan to go to university or TAFE or leave school at high, when they can in high school? Um, and what are their occupational intentions? What do they want to be when they grow up? Or for the secondary kids, we ask them, what do they see themselves doing work-wise by the time they're 25? Um, we have 10,000 student surveys. We have four years of data. We have teacher, parent, and student surveys. And we have focus groups with teachers, parents, and students. And I could have spent a couple of hours sharing with you some of that data. But I just want to look at who expressed interest in teaching. Because I think that's a really important question. So of all the students uh, and all the jobs they named, and there were hundreds of them, including YouTuber and gamer and things that you know, weren't even open to many of us when uh, we were thinking about what we wanted to be when we grew up, uh, nearly 14% of all kids want to be teachers. Now, I could do a whole lot more with this, but again, I'm trying to squeeze so much into this presentation, I'm going to keep it really short. These are some of the factors that we looked at for all of the occupations. So which of these factors were significant predictors of interest in teaching? And if you look down that list of school, what we called at the time, I don't have time to explain, school level and student level, or not school level, sorry, school-related and student-related variables, when you do a regression analysis, you're looking at which are significant in the presence of all of these variables. Which do you think would have been significant predictors of interest in teaching? Gender, all right. Girls were nearly five times as likely as boys to express interest in teaching. Um, that one's probably one of the easiest to predict. And not surprising given our teaching um, enrolments over the last decade or so, the blue is girls in this instance and the orange is boys in teacher education. 
And, oh, sorry, just on that slide, you know, just the growth in numbers is pretty dramatic as well. Let me just jump back to this one. What else would have been significant, do you think? Nope. Nope. <laughs> Actually, more kids who had teachers as parents wanted to teach, but it wasn't statistically significant. So, but interestingly, it was certainly not a detraction from teaching. If they had a parent who taught, you know, it wasn't a, a negative. Any more guessing? Can you guess what was what else was not significant? All right, enough guessing games. Guess what I'm thinking? It's not a good way to teach. Um, okay, being Indigenous, students who were from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander backgrounds uh, were 1.5 times as likely to express interest in teaching in our sample. And that says something, I think, about the absolute success of the Max City um, initiative, but also says something historically about um, uh, pathways into higher education for students, uh, for Indigenous students. The 1,000 Teachers by 1990 initiative that Matt City has built upon um, may be part of the reason why we see a lot of Indigenous kids interested in teaching. The third variable that was statistically significant and uh, was that it was students in the middle years were less likely to express interest in teaching. And if I uh, show you the graph, so we had students in three, four cohorts. Some were in year three, five, seven, and nine when they started the study. We followed them through four years of school. So each of those coloured lines represents the four-year data. But what you see overall, the overall trend, is a dip in the middle years when I guess kids like us less um, <laughs> in general. What to me is really interesting is that prior achievement was not a significant predictor of interest in teaching and nor was uh, self-perception of performance relative to one's classmates. And if I might just read you a little bit from the conclusion of a paper we're about to publish, we said most pertinent to the current policy context is our finding that prior achievement as determined by students' NAPLAN results, and you know there are all the caveats around NAPLAN, was not a statistically significant predictor. This result calls into question whether current resource-intensive efforts to lift the quality of aspiring teachers are warranted. If a considerable proportion of students come from the top academic quartile, 31% of our sample were in the top academic quartile, and the majority of students interested in teaching, 52%, see themselves as above or well above average in comparison to their classmates, and many have a high opinion of their academic capacities and broader suitability, um, for their role as teachers, as indicated by this kind of slide when we ask them why they want to teach, there should be plenty of high-achieving applicants to teaching. In this context, policy that locks in academic chief achievement as the key problem might be misguided. Maintaining interest in teaching among school students may present a greater challenge, particularly if aspirants are bombarded with rhetoric that lowers the esteem for teachers and teaching. Rather than invest investing so heavily in the regulation of who can teach, Australian education policymakers might consider ways to capitalise on the widespread interest in and enthusiasm for teaching that appears to exist among school students, including high-achieving students and including students in the later years of high school. This is not just that little kids love their teachers. As you saw, that students at the upper end also um, are really interested in teaching. 
So contrary to the view that aspiring teachers are frequently lacking in capability and suitability, our students in this study did not regard themselves in this way at all. Instead, they believed teaching was something they'd be good at, often on the basis of their own strong performance in school and their passion for particular subjects or working with children. They also named teaching as inspiring and rewarding, a way to help to make a difference, ensuring the well-being of future generations and fulfilling an altruistic desire to give back. Uh, so there's some pretty positive stuff in there, I think, about interest in teaching. And we know that kids' interests when they're children don't necessarily translate into what they end up enrolling in or becoming, but it signals a space where we can send certain kinds of messages. And the messages that are being espoused at the moment about teachers may actually discourage the very students that we're... That governments and others are trying to attract into teaching is part of the argument we build in that paper. Anyway, that's um, just an aside, really. The second um, key strategy that's been used at the moment to improve teaching is to measure and evaluate um, teaching, and this is particularly big in the United States. The whole value-added measures initiative um, and attributing students' test scores sometimes two years later to the teacher who taught them and making hiring and firing decisions on the basis of these kinds of tests is a big push. Now, there are huge issues with measurement of, uh, and the kinds of attributions that have been made, and lots of people have written about that. And I guess the, the final short point I want to make about that as a strategy is we can measure something uh, infinitely, in, is that the word I want? Over and over again, um, it's not going to improve it. Measure and measure, what's the saying? You can measure the pig and it's not going to fatten it or whatever the expression is, you know. So measurement in and of itself is not a solution to improving quality. If I just go back to the recruitment strategy as well, recruiting better quality teachers, if that is the push, it's a really long-term strategy. Okay, maybe we'll eventually get the right kind of people into teaching and then, you know, a decade later, what about all the, the kids who are currently in teachers' classrooms and what about the 250,000-plus teachers who are currently in Australian schools and the 80,000-odd students who are currently enrolled in teacher education programs? So my interest is in supporting current teachers and prospective teachers to teach well. Okay, that's nice. Nice bit of rhetoric. How do we do that? To teach well, and back to the quality issue, we need to know what constitutes quality. We've got to have a starting point for setting those kinds of quality benchmarks. The standards give us something, but we need something more with a little more specificity if it's going to be really helpful. There's a lot of work that's gone on in professional development of teachers, the in-service um, part of this uh, enterprise, if you like, that's focused on processes. Okay, we set up professional learning communities or communities of practice. We engage in lesson study. We, um, we engage in instructional rounds and so on. But so much of that is about the process. It's not about the substance. And I'll come back to that shortly. But it is where the quality teaching model and the work that I've been doing on this fits in because it provides a way of articulating what we mean by quality, but not in an overly prescriptive way. In a, in a way that enables the conversation, providing concepts and language with which to talk about quality in practice. Its antecedents were the authentic pedagogy model in the United States that Fred Newman and his colleagues developed and the productive pedagogy model that I was involved in developing with Bob Lingard, Alan Luke and James Ladwig for Education Queensland in the late 
expertise. Effectively, the quality teaching model and the productive pedagogy model both expand authentic pedagogy. The quality teaching model is a refinement of the productive pedagogy model because some aspects of that model did not hold up in measurement terms. But they all have the same intellectual lineage and they all are oriented at um, enhancing student learning uh, in a broadly conceptualised way, not in a narrowly conceptualised way about test scores. Um, and I want to say that the quality teaching model, all of these models, they're not just about teaching practices. It's not a checklist of teaching skills. This is not a narrow, technocratic-oriented uh, kind of enterprise. It's actually about the practice of teaching, much as we might think about the practice of law or the practice of medicine. It's what are the big principles that guide our work as a profession. I'll come back to that shortly. Um, it was implemented in New South Wales in 2003, 2005. The assessment-related materials went into New South Wales and the ACTs picked it up. Since then, a number of Catholic dioceses have worked with it, a number of independent schools, a number of places in other states have dabbled with the model. There are other models out there. There are stacks of pedagogical frameworks. Um, Bill Loudon at a forum on teacher performance assessment last year I think cautioned us against the Bunnings approach of build your own, you know, DIY pedagogical framework. The quality teaching model is actually grounded in a whole lot of research. And if you read the um, annotated bibliography that sits behind this, this is not dreamt up by a couple of us over a bottle of red on a Friday night. This is something that comes from um, interrogating the literature on what is it about teaching practice that impacts on student outcomes. And it comes from very different research traditions. There's stuff from classroom ethnographies in there. There's stuff from linguistics in there. There's stuff from sociology of education and psychology and so on. A couple of the other frameworks that have had a fair bit of empirical work done with them, Bob Pianta's framework called CLASS. If you just look at the um, domains and dimensions and so on, you see this is more about the support that teachers provide in classrooms. The other one that's very well known is Charlotte Danielson's framework for teaching. Um, and if you look at the detail there, it's much more like the professional standards of teachers. It's also designed, originally at least, for use for teacher assessment. And our work is not about assessing teachers although we have to think about that in the current space of this um, push for teacher performance assessments in teacher education. Uh, our work is about teacher development. So the model has these three dimensions. I suspect some of you, you know, are very familiar with this and others of you may have sort of heard of it vaguely. So I'm not going to have time to go into much detail, but even if you just look at the names of the three dimensions, it's about what we're trying to achieve as teachers, intellectual quality, in every lesson, every activity we do with students. It's about establishing an environment that supports students' learning and it's about making learning more significant for students. How do we get them engaged through, through forms of significance, including diverse cultural knowledge and so on? You see that in there, there, there is stuff about the treatment of knowledge, treating knowledge as problematic, engaging students in higher order thinking, dealing with big concepts, deep knowledge, trying to achieve deep understanding. But there's also material in there that's about um, supporting students by having high expectations, by providing explicit quality criteria and so on, um, and also about making their learning more connected to something beyond the classroom and to their own lives and all the rest of it. If we compare different models that are out there, <clears throat> I think what quality teaching does that distinguishes it from some of the others is it is generic. It's designed to apply from year kindergarten to 12, um, 
actually and earlier and beyond. It can certainly be used in higher education um, and across all subject areas. Other frameworks are very specific, but because it's generic and can be used to um, provide coherence across a whole teacher education program or a whole school and so on. It's comprehensive. It's not narrowly focused on a part of practice like classroom management or, or um, engagement or higher order thinking. It's broad. And because of that, it can actually um, shape people's conceptions of what it means to teach. And I still remember interviewing a deputy principal who'd been teaching 20-odd years, working with the staff for a couple. He was a highly successful deputy in a primary school. He said, you know, this is the first time in my teaching career I feel I'm actually teaching students. Until now, I've just been giving them work to do. And that's a really poignant, I think, statement of how it changed his frame for what he was trying to achieve in the classroom. It's absolutely for teacher development, not assessment, and we've been really insistent on that, and our work with uh, departments of education and with Teachers' Federation and so on has been very insistent that this is nothing to be used to um, uh, denigrate teachers, rank teachers, rate teachers, and so on. It's to be used to support teacher development. Um, it's... Focus is classroom teaching, not all of teachers' work, okay? And the standards pick up all of teachers' work and are really important for addressing professional practice, professional knowledge, professional engagement. But this is about the professional practice side and the classroom practice side and giving some specificity. People go on with this silly debate between teaching and learning. It's about both, obviously. If you teach, you have to be focused on student learning. If you're focused on learning, you have to think about the teaching that's going to produce it. I mean, the people who say we shouldn't be focusing on quality teaching, we should be focusing on quality learning, I think it's a silly semantic debate. And this is as much about learning as it is about teaching. Um, some frameworks are very closed. There's actually one in the US that says unless you give praise five times during a lesson, you cannot be rated a superior teacher. I mean, that's just silliness. The others are very open, and we do this a lot. Tell me what you'd like me to focus on today. And that's the old clinical supervision model that came, it was developed in the 1960s and so on. There's value in that. But when I ask a student teacher, tell me what you'd like me to focus on today, and they say my questioning... And their questioning's fine, but there's a whole lot of other stuff that's not working in the classroom. Then it's very slow development that can occur through that. The quality teaching model is obviously closed. There are 18 elements, but their applicability to a particular lesson on a particular day is open and negotiable. When I teach Javelin as a former physical education teacher, the element called student direction will score a one on our one to five scale. You will, you will stand behind the line and not move until I blow my whistle. It's not explore the Javelin kind of lesson. Okay, so it opens the conversation for teachers to say, well, no, there was, I didn't treat knowledge as problematic today because I just wanted them to get these concepts across. Um, it was, and I don't think treating knowledge as problematic was going to help these year two kids get this basic concept, whatever it was. So it's an opening that is created by this. It's not prescriptive. It can be used for self-reflection, can be used for collaborative analysis. And that's what we're doing with our work on quality teaching rounds, which I think I'm coming to in a moment. Just to summarise some of that, though, some frameworks um, out there focus on teaching, some on teachers. Some are about assessment, some are about development. Each quadrant here would do different kinds of work. I think the standards fit there. They're about teachers. Can be used for assessment, can be used for development. Um, the quality teaching model, on the other hand, is about teaching. 
the framework for teaching, Danielson's work fits somewhere there. Class is more about the classroom. Quality teaching rounds moves the focus clearly into this quadrant of how we enhance teaching practice. When we um, operate in that top level, looking at teaching practice, it impacts on all of that other teachers' work stuff. We know teachers, particularly in Canberra, who've worked with the Quality Teaching Rounds approach, have used it to demonstrate their achievement against all of the professional standards. Because Quality Teaching Rounds is about professional knowledge, is about professional practice, and is about engaging teachers in doing collaborative work. So it actually helps there. If we, if we operate only on the left-hand side, we try and motivate... Sorry about the colour there. It looks different on my computer screen. Try and motivate the teachers through fear, and that's what merit pay and a whole lot of the regulation is about. We motivate people through fear. Uh, at this end, I think what we're getting is motivation of teachers through hope. A lot of teachers don't know how good they are. Okay? Some don't know how bad they are too, and I accept that there are you know, issues. I'm not blindly suggesting that all teachers are wonderful, but a lot of teachers lack confidence because they don't get feedback on their practice that helps them know how good they are. They don't get opportunities to go into each other's classrooms, not routinely. All right, so there's these four studies that I've been doing over the last decade or so um, with colleagues, and I really want to acknowledge my colleagues. None of this work would have been possible without the large teams of um, researchers I've managed to pull together. Uh, and I have some fabulous data from all of these studies, but I think I'm going to just jump to the randomised control trial that we've just done so that I don't run out of time completely. I mentioned numbers before, and some people immediately go, oh, well, you know, numbers are evil and dangerous. Um, we have a coding system within the quality teaching uh, framework. So every element has a question that guides your thinking. So for deep knowledge, to what extent is the knowledge addressed in the lesson focused on a small number of key concepts and the relationships between them? And then we have this one to five coding scheme where teachers can make judgments about their own practice or about a lesson that they've observed. And you can see here, it's got a quasi-quantitative feel. It's um, not completely encompassing. There'll be gaps between the two and the three and the three and the four or whatever, but it's a basis for conversation at a level of specificity that typically doesn't happen without it. It's not about the numbers. The numbers are a means to having those detailed, specific conversations. So that's just an example. So when I'm talking about one to five codes in a minute, you'll know sort of where they come from. And in the end, we say to teachers when they have discussions where they're trying to come to agreement about, well, was the knowledge in this lesson a three or a four? In a, in a sense, it doesn't matter. Um, it, in a sense, it's the conversation that they have along the way and what would have got us to a four or a five in this lesson it becomes really important. Now, the quality teaching rounds approach we came up with as a way of using the quality teaching framework. Quality teaching framework went into schools, and in some schools it went straight into the circular filing bin, and in other schools it sat on a shelf, uh, and in some schools they did a lot with it. But systematically, uh, it needed an approach that would help teachers to actually engage with it. We looked at the literature on teacher professional development really systematically, and it seemed that you know, there's been this big turn away from top-down, one-off PD as pretty useless, really, and not making much of a difference, to school-based, ongoing, sustained, collaborative professional learning among colleagues 
So professional learning communities, communities of practice, all of that work fits in there. And the work on instructional rounds was also gaining um, a lot of momentum, not just in the US, but also Canada, Australia and other places. With both of those approaches, professional learning, learning community and instructional rounds, teachers are brought together to do thinking work, planning work, refining work, but without a particular lens to guide that work. So whether it's successful or not depends a lot on the particular confluence of teachers and um, their experience and their knowledge and so on. So we thought if we added to these kinds of processes the quality teaching framework, we then make for much more focused work within professional learning communities and we make the purpose of doing some kind of rounds of visiting each other's classrooms more meaningful and more targeted. So we argue that the quality teaching um, framework gives us this lens through which to comprehensively notice a whole lot of other things and assess what's going on for the teacher and the students um, for systematic and specific analysis of lessons. The focus is on the lesson, not the teacher. And we do um, two-day workshops really, sorry, typically with teachers before they commence rounds to ensure that they are aware of the importance of doing this in nurturing ways. So we are careful in the use of language. It's not I gave you a three, it's this element coded a three and so on. So there's a lot of work we do to set it up. Um, and then it's a framework from which to have those conversations. The way we do rounds is, and when we first did this work, whole days, teachers given a whole day to focus on teaching. And I mean, that ought not to be a luxury in schools. And when Barney was talking about funding for, for teaching, uh, you know, schools have funding at the moment. Some of it can be directed at teacher professional learning and so on. Along the way, of course, you might be thinking about how some of this could work in, in teacher education pre-service. But anyway, we bring teachers together to discuss something they've all read, to enlarge their knowledge, their shared knowledge, and also build that sense of community. It's interesting how teachers say to us how rarely they get to talk with each other about ideas. Again, surely that should be sort of fundamental to the work of teachers, but mostly they come in, they're bombarded with all that stuff, they go off and they teach their lessons, they're lucky if they get a toilet break at morning tea time and then they're back in the classroom and then the day's over, you know, with all of that busyness and complexity. Um, what happens then after the discussion is one member of the group teaches a lesson and the others go and watch. Everyone then codes the lesson, including the teacher who taught it. It's not us giving you feedback. It's us using the opportunity to come into your classroom to talk about our teaching. And then there's an extended discussion of the lesson, the coding of the lesson, um, of teaching in general. You know, if we watched a lesson and the group work didn't go particularly well, we might be talking about, well, how do we all do group work? What's missing? What could we do differently? It's not just us giving feedback to you. Um, and just very quickly, some of the features of rounds that we say are non-negotiable. There have to be at least three people in a professional learning community. This is not a one-on-one -on -one coaching or mentoring activity. Quality teaching framework can be used for that, but when we do rounds, it's not about that. If you're in rounds, you're a full participant. We've had principals participate, but we say if you're going to participate, you have to be there. You leave the group if the school's burning down, but otherwise you're there. You don't just duck in and out every five minutes to take a phone call or, uh, or something that's not really important. And so that might mean the principal has to borrow a class and teach in front of peers 
and um, go first, typically, we say as well, and it really breaks down some of those concerns about power relations. Everybody hosts around, uh, therefore the focus we say to teachers should be on regular lessons. There's no point in just doing the one-off showcase that took six hours to prepare, but just regular teaching. We always watch the entire lesson. There's an increasing push in our sector at the moment towards walkthroughs, 15-minute drop-ins and so on. We think it's much more respectful of teachers and of the teaching learning process to watch entire lessons, because whether we like it or not, mostly teaching is divided into these units that we call lessons. So let's watch the beginning and the end and be fully present. We always insist that there's time for teachers to code and analyse the lesson individually. It's like having our students in our universities do the reading before they come together to discuss it. If they haven't done it, the discussion is nowhere near as useful. Um, and the teacher who taught the lesson also codes the lesson and is part of the discussion. And then when the teachers come together for the discussion, which typically takes two hours, everybody takes their turn at saying, I coded this element uh, a five for these reasons, because what I saw was so-and-so. And someone else will say, well, I coded a three, because when I was in the back of the room working with those students, they seemed to be, you know... And so the whole conversation works quite systematically, and that doesn't matter if you're the first-year teacher or the principal. You take your turn to share. And it has really powerful effects in breaking down some of the power hierarchies that exist in schools and giving beginning teachers a voice and a space where they can be heard. So we've found that to be a really powerful part of this. And the idea is that they come to an agreement. After hearing from everybody, we say, well, can we come to agreement about what was the, the best score for this particular element? And we also say there should be a commitment to confidentiality. You don't go back to the staff room and say, oh, I can't believe Jenny only got one five. Um, that's not productive. They agree to not talk about, especially the coding, when they go back to their classrooms. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about quality teaching rounds. Now, we uh, recently just completed, funded by the New South Wales Department, for which we're very grateful, um, a randomised control trial. We observed two lessons per teacher at three time points. We had eight teachers in each of 24 schools, so 192 teachers in total. We observed them before we began. Six months later, when they'd done quality teaching rounds, the intervention was over and six months later again to see if there'd been an effect, was the effect sustained or did it just drop straight off? Um, so in total, we did 1,073 whole lesson observations at three time points in an 18-month period, and you can imagine um, the logistics of that. All good randomised controlled trials um, also collect qualitative evidence so we can think about why it worked and how it worked, not just whether or not it worked. So we have a whole lot of qualitative data as well. We called, or the department called, for expressions of interest in participating in this study. There's around 2,200 schools in New South Wales. 243 wanted to be part of it. And that says something as well, I think, about the conditions in schools, where schools are looking for something powerful to support their work. We divided them into primary, secondary, urban, rural. The urban schools we divided into low, middle and high SES groups. The baseline observation, uh, we randomly selected 24 schools at that point. We did our baseline observations and then we randomly assigned schools to one of three conditions. The set condition, they did two full sets of rounds and they had two groups of four teachers in the school. The choice group, the blue, they did one set of rounds and they could divide their eight teachers up however they liked. All eight, a three and a five, two fours. Actually, most ended up doing two fours. The control group had to wait 12 months before they started. 
Our observers were blinded to group allocation. That means our observers didn't know whether they were watching a teacher in the control group or in one of the other groups. It was a really strict part of the protocol. By the way, the schools were really quite diverse in terms of language backgrounds other than English, the enrolment of kids from those backgrounds, the enrolment of Indigenous students, really diverse, and in terms of socioeconomic, uh, socio-educational advantage as measured by ICSIA, really diverse schools. Participating teachers were pretty representative of teachers in New South Wales, sorry, not only in New South Wales, but in Australia, you know, 75% female, average age 38. Um, about 20% of them had less than four years teaching experience, about 25% more than um, whatever I've got there, sorry, 16. <laughs> Do it in different ways. That's the whole data set. So we have surveys, interviews, case studies. Um, we did fidelity, implementation fidelity checks. and had the schools do their own fidelity checks as well. So it's all uh, consistent with consort protocols, which I didn't know anything about, but I do now. Um, the overview of findings, very briefly, um, there was significant variation in quality teaching scores. Like, if you don't get variation, that's not a very useful instrument. So there was a lot of variation. We had significant positive effects for the intervention groups, no moderating effect of school sector or school location, so primary, secondary, urban, rural, no differences. And interesting, no significant differences in terms of years of teaching experience. And here's a scatter plot of all the observation, years of teaching experience along the bottom, quality of teaching on the vertical axis. There is no relationship between years of teaching. Now, when we did our first big ARC study just looking at quality teaching, we also found no significant difference in the quality of teaching for beginning teachers and experienced teachers. And we must say, how is that possible? Like, you, surely teachers get better over time. There are two main explanations, I think, for this result. One is we're doing a great job of preparing graduates ready to hit the ground running. Don't laugh, we should maybe, that's one. The other explanation, and I think probably the, I mean, I think both are true. The other explanation is that teachers are not having professional development experiences that fundamentally change or improve the way they teach. And, and so that's fascinating. Um, the Grattan Institute actually just asked us to do this analysis because they're putting out a report on classroom, teach classroom management and effective teaching. And I think they hoped that we'd find a, a different kind of correlation, but this is what we found. And we've given them the data and they're checking it and so on, but there's no problems with this analysis. Uh, when we looked at school ICSIA, which they also asked us to do, we've just got four bands of, so schools less than 900, schools in that 900 to 1,000, 1,000 to 1,100, and over 1,100 bands. And although it looks like there's a slight difference there, particularly at the lowest end, the difference is so small that it has no practical significance. So this also, I think, is very interesting. We have teachers doing great work in really difficult schools sometimes, not, of course, that there's a simple correlation between ICSEA and how difficult the school is. So I think there's some really interesting stuff in there about what we're preparing our graduates for and also the confidence that graduates can have in their own teaching, and that's something we might talk about later. But let me show you some of the stats on this. There's the baseline average scores overall for quality teaching for the three groups, the choice, control and intervention groups. That's the six-month result. And the effect sizes, using Cohen's D, 
And there's the 12-month result. So not only was there an effect, but it was a sustained effect. Now, based on our implementation fidelity checks, if we excluded a couple of the professional learning communities who really didn't do it exactly as we intended, and you expect people to muck around with stuff. I mean, it's just the way we all roll, basically. Um, when we looked at the per protocol analysis, so those who did it according to the protocol, uh, you get uh, even stronger effects, basically. So with a short-term intervention, for some of these teachers, all they did was four half-day quality teaching rounds, and we got this kind of effect on the quality of teaching. There's not much else out there internationally that shows professional development having an impact on the quality of teaching. Now, the next really important piece, and we actually have an ARC Discovery Grant under review, so if you might, wouldn't mind keeping your fingers crossed for me, I think announcements are due out at the end of this week, is to look, see if we can chart the relationship between participation in quality teaching rounds and student outcomes, which is actually a more complicated piece to do. But nonetheless, um, was it... Jane last night was saying inputs are really important. You know, if we can get teachers providing that really good input in terms of the quality of teaching, um, student outcomes should follow. We do have some outcomes data. Uh, actually had it in this presentation and last night I decided I'd better take it out because I, from the earlier studies because I knew I would run out of time because this might feel like I'm building to the end but it's like those good movies you watch and you think it's going to end and then there's another whole bit and then there'll be another whole bit. <laughs> anyway, um, so that's the impact on the quality of teaching. And we do know from Fred Newman's work as well that when teachers are teaching at a higher level as measured by authentic pedagogy, they found significant positive effects on student outcomes um, in terms of standardised test outcomes as well as more uh, authentic tasks and that there was a narrowing of, gap, of the gap for equity groups. And we have that same data from our first study, the first ARC study, uh, the CEPA study, and with the first study where we did quality teaching rounds, we also have some NAPLAN data from before the schools participating in rounds began and after, and we compared it with other schools in the same diocese, and we have... Uh, schools that started behind on NAPLAN results and finished ahead of the comparator schools. So we have indicative data, but we want to do the more robust stuff. Not only did this impact on the quality of teaching, but using Peter Hart's scales on teacher morale, you'd be interested to see how it, fact, it impacted on morale. They all started about the same. Six months later, it went like this. Now, six months uh, data collection, sorry, the baseline data collection was July. The six-month data collection was obviously November, December, and we know that morale is pretty low in a lot of schools. The teachers are pretty tired by the end of the year. Uh, but when we went back six months later, the two intervention groups, it had positively impacted on their morale. Interestingly, the control group, group continued to decline a little bit. There's also a scale Peter Hart uses on teacher appraisal and recognition. It's a sense of... Um, being encouraged, being recognised for the work I do, being supported and so on. And interestingly here, the control group started a bit higher um, and dropped and the other two groups um, basically rose. So short message there is not only is it impacting on the quality of teaching, but in ways that support teachers, where teachers are feeling better about themselves and feeling supported and recognised. So 
that to me is a really important part of this as well. Now you can look at this and say, oh, this is easy. All we've got to do is get student teachers or students or teachers, whatever, um, whether you're working pre-service or in-service together, to have conversations about their teaching and go into each other's classrooms. But I think it's always important to acknowledge and recognise the subtleties that go into any particular intervention. And Lewis Perry and Murata put this really well. Innovations often fail if we only look at the surface features rather than the underlying mechanisms. And I think there are three key mechanisms that underlie the success of quality teaching rounds. The first is that it absolutely helps to structure the knowledge base for teaching. There's all this stuff. Teaching is so complex and we find it very hard to talk about. But when it's reduced in a way to the 18 elements and three dimensions of the quality teaching model, it gives people a framework to have at least as a basis for their discussions. I'm not suggesting it's the be-all or end-all, but when you think about what's in the quality teaching model, it raises questions about the curriculum and how the curriculum's been treated. It raises questions about why we teach that now rather than at a, a different time point, which bits we gloss over, which bits we need to dwell on, how we connect concepts to each other etc, etc. So it structures the knowledge base, it flattens the power hierarchies and it enhances relationships. And I've just got a few quotes from teachers and I know it's really awkward when the quote's there and I read it or leave you to read it because you read at different paces, but I'm going to read them because I've read them before and it helps, I think, with um, the reading. So if you don't want to look at the screen and just want to listen to me, whatever suits you. So in terms of the, not structuring the knowledge base, here we have a first, uh, sorry, four to six years out teacher, uh, Molly, saying it gives you a clearer lens to look through or a framework to base your teaching on. It's nice to have that bit of a framework to pin your teaching on to know that you're doing the right thing, really. We can see the programs we run are addressing the quality teaching model and it gives you greater confidence in your teaching and what you're doing. Or a beginning teacher, I really like the way you actually have the quality teaching framework there as the basis. It's not a matter of that lesson worked well. It's not a free-for-all discussion. It's actually guided by the framework, which is really good because you've got that common language and everyone kinds of understands where you're coming from, and I really valued that. Or Tilly, another beginning teacher, look, what makes it safe is having that quality teaching classroom practice guide because you can depersonalise it and say, well, going on the language here, the coding scheme, this is what the coding needs to be because this is the evidence we have to back it up. Because you're working with that framework, as, uh, with that language as your guide, it makes it really safe to give each other feedback. In terms of power hierarchies, Kate, I'm more willing to interact with the other teachers. I don't feel as intimidated. As a new teacher, you sort of sit back and go, I don't really know what they're talking about. But QT has given me more confidence, so I know I can speak a bit more because I'm more confident as a teacher. I'm not afraid to speak in front of people, even if I'm wrong. And I really like that, willing to take risks. I still remember the first time I spoke up as a young PE teacher in my staff room of 80 teachers, and I could feel my heart pounding in my head as I raised my hand nervously to speak up. This is really providing beginning teachers with a voice, um, a way to feel confident in terms of speaking. We have um, another one here. One thing I've liked about this is that there's the four of us, so you're almost, you're not forced, but you have to speak up. You get the opportunity to share your thoughts and to speak. When we were coding, you know, we'd have to justify why we gave that particular code. The best thing about it has been in a small group. I've gotten to know three other teachers and their practices throughout this time, and I feel I've been heard. We typically, by the way, have teachers in the 
in-service setting, working in cross-faculty or cross-stage groups, and they say they benefit more from the PE teacher being in there with the maths teacher and the English teacher because we experience the lesson more like the students do because we don't get all that other stuff that all the maths teachers get because they're talking the same language. So, um, But it can be done within faculty groups, cross-faculty groups. It can be done across schools. We know schools where they've done it between the high school and the senior college in Canberra or between the primary school and the secondary school. Um, a couple more quotes, sorry. Even... Um, the more experienced teachers, says Derek, who've been doing QT rounds are taking it on board and asking lots of questions, which shows you can be teaching for 20-plus years and still have lots of questions. And I like that too because, of course, teaching is something we never perfect. It's not a destination you arrive at. It's something that you're... It's constantly changing anyway. In terms of uh, relationships, doing rounds is the best thing I've been able to do, building a relationship with teachers in different faculties I didn't have a relationship with before going into that faculty to get assistance for certain things, especially across KLAs. And then I just have a couple of classics here. This is Karen, who's an experienced teacher. They didn't like me, and I didn't like them, and it was only on hearsay and reputation alone. They didn't know me from a bar of soap, and I didn't know them from a bar of soap. But when I was in the room with them and working with them, I respected them, and I learned to trust them, and I learned who they really were. And this one is a classic. Sorry, you're not meant to laugh before a joke. Um, uh, it's good to work with people I don't normally work with. The fact that we're on the same stage brings us a bit more close. Like, I've got to know this one lady. I didn't even realise she was a teacher here before. In the middle of last year, I thought she was a parent that didn't leave. <laughs> I didn't even realise. It's pretty sad. The school's so big, I didn't realise. This is a primary teacher. I've been involved in her lessons, and I've got to know her through this and her passion, and it's been good. Um, but I guess it just shows that it has this capacity to build the relationships as well. I think maybe I have one more. In terms of the impact on myself and my colleagues, says Michelle, a very experienced teacher, um, and the kids. So impact on myself, my colleagues, and the kids. I think this has been the biggest winner. Breaking down barriers, going into other people's classrooms to share, that collegiate feeling. The kids probably giving them a more engaging set of activities and the way I present work in the classroom, just more thought goes into that. And as a whole school initiative, everyone's involved so everyone seems to be on board and we have that common goal to work towards. We have no disconfirming evidence. We don't have a single teacher from this study or any of our studies who said it's been a negative experience participating in this process. And you know, as researchers, you've got to look for that stuff. The only thing teachers say that's negative is time away from their class, a little bit, um, particularly in the middle study we did where teachers did eight whole day rounds, um, and the logistics of just getting it organised in a school and finding casuals and all of that stuff. And funding, of course, for some schools becomes an issue. But how do we think about this in terms of pre-service teacher education and what are the possibilities? And this is where you thought it was over and I'm about to just do a little bit more. Um, I've got a little bit of time. Some of you may be familiar with this report that Bira brought out um, a couple of years ago talking about the importance of research in teacher preparation and basically arguing that there's four ways in which research should inform teacher education <clears throat> or can inform, actually, they said. One is that the content of our teacher ed programs might be informed by research-based knowledge and scholarship. Well, I would hope so. <laughs> Second, <clears throat> research can be used to inform the design and structure of our programs. Thanks, Ted. 
Teachers can engage with and be discerning consumers of research or can conduct their own research. That pretty much covers the four ways in which we use research in teacher education. I would argue with quality teaching rounds that we're doing all four, and I think you need to do all four. It's not a matter of just picking one of these. It's about doing all four of them together. So the quality teaching framework itself, if you like, the content is derived from research and scholarship on teaching that makes a difference for student outcomes. The research has informed the development of our quality teaching rounds approach and our ongoing research on it is contributing to its refinement and it's also available to inform the design of teacher education programs. The framework and the approach engage teachers as consumers of research because especially through the reading part of the activity, they're looking at research and engaging with it. And uh, in terms of the fourth part, it, in, it has teachers researching their own practice. And I think, again, that's part of its power. The Master of Teaching program at the University of Newcastle does have quality teaching rounds and quality teaching embedded within it, um, but in a preliminary way. And um, you know, I'd be delighted to work with other institutions who might be interested in working together to think about how we can uh, implement this more broadly. The evidence-based pedagogical model provides a coherent vision for teaching and teacher education, and one of the biggest criticisms of teacher education, if you look at Ken Zeichner's work and others, has been the co coherence of our programs, because there's all these fragments, and it is a way of bringing it together. So whether you're talking about you know, ed psych or sociology or discipline studies or practicum and so on, it is a way of building greater coherence. It certainly also is a way of avoiding what Zeichner and Tabachnik years ago talked about as the washout effects of teacher education, if you've got that alignment between what's happening in our teacher ed program and what's happening in the schools. And a lot of schools in New South Wales are using the quality teaching framework and increasingly using the quality teaching rounds approach. And it is a clinical approach to um, teacher analysis and refinement. Now, there is a whole thing I was going to do on <clears throat> clinical practice, um, and Jeff Whitty and I actually did a, a paper at BIRA about this, but I'm just going to have to, I think, skip it because I'm keen that there's a bit of time for discussion at least. Um, but I do think this kind of statement's really important. It's troubling that teachers are accountable for using research to inform practice when they've not been fully prepared to do so. You know, the idea that we say, well, teachers should be researchers of their own practice or teachers should be discerning consumers of research even. Research is so complex. You know, the more I've got engaged in this kind of large-scale quantitative stuff either, I remember... I used to say to a colleague, can't you just spit out those statistics? It's way more complicated than that. I have a deep appreciation for that now. Um, so I'll just skip that. Doing this stuff in teacher education is possibly more complex than doing it in in-service because we've got to go through our academic senates to get approval to change things. We've got yeah, uh, all of these challenges. Logistics is challenging to bring groups of students together when they don't like to be on campus much, even if they're on campus at all, um, you know, outside of their class times. Buy-in is difficult um, from our colleagues sometimes. Uh, and that goes back to this third point, which is that contestation over what constitutes good teaching. And so you know, getting that buy-in can be really tricky. We haven't yet gathered evidence in the pre-service context. I'd be really keen to do that. But you know, doing a randomised controlled trial, for instance, you know, when we have some institutions doing or not, or some students doing or not, you know, this is all quite complicated. 
Um, but in terms of opportunities, it does provide a means for improving the quality of both teaching and teacher education, I think. It addresses the knowledge base, the theory practice nexus, and prepares teachers for ongoing learning through collaboration with their colleagues in schools. And I think the success of the intervention with practising teachers really does at least give us some reason to have optimism about its potential to support um, beginning teachers. If I go back to this kind of starting slide, if we put quality teaching rounds in the centre, we do have at least some preliminary evidence of its impact on teacher learning, teaching practice and student outcomes. And I want to just close with a slide where when we asked teachers in interviews about the impact of quality teaching rounds and we just produced a word cloud, the bigger the word, uh, the more it was mentioned. What fascinates me is how big changed is. They talked about how it actually changed, how they saw teaching, how they saw their colleagues, how they saw their students. Uh, it had a real impact on, on teachers in a way that very little professional development and um, teacher development work has done. I might leave you just with those um, publications that we have so far on this work, uh, if anyone wants to follow up, um, but also very happy to hear from any of you who might be interested in collaborating in various ways um, for how we might explore the benefits of this work for your work uh, in teacher education. How do we get this research um, and these practices more widely picked up around systems and and to help us in institute in universities as well and i think barney made that point this morning you know we need to do good quality research and then we've got to do the translation work to get it out to the various stakeholders we've only just completed this so um we just submitted that last paper um last week uh, and so i've been really strict with my research colleagues that we need to have the um peer review from our colleagues that this is in fact good quality research before we go to public. So I thought about pieces for the conversation. Um, the New South Wales Minister has our full report on the randomised control trial and I'm actually speaking at a forum this time next week. Um, I've got a 10 minute slot um, after Parsi Salberg and others um, who are speaking but I, I've they asked for the ace cards and the headlines, I think, was what the marketing, marketing team told me. Um, so I've got to get this um, really punchy and sharp for that. But I, I think uh, it's absolutely critical. And uh, I suppose one of my next steps, once I get this stuff out of the way, is to um, try and seek an audience with the relevant groups. And whether that Universities Australia can help us, whether um, talking to the Federal Department of Education and so on um, is the way forward. And I, um, I don't like to sound immodest, but I actually think that we're world leading in some of this research. There's, there's no one else who's got this kind of evidence um, and has done this kind of rigorous gold standard, as they call it, um, trial around impact on teaching quality. If we can do the next piece of research as well that shows impact on student outcomes, including more equitable outcomes, which is my passion, um, I think we're in a really strong position. Thanks for the comment. I, I do think there's this distinction between teachers and teaching, and the standards help us to think about what it means to be a good teacher. And I think this work helps us to be very specific about what it means to do good teaching. And we would say that this work uh, is one of the mechanisms that can help teachers to demonstrate their achievement against the standards um, with people... No, I wasn't going to say... I won't even say that. 
Sometimes you just need to use your inside voice, don't you? Um, I, I, um, I think there's a lot of power in what we're doing. And it not only... Sometimes less is more, isn't it? And it's not only the 18 elements, which teachers even say sometimes they find overwhelming to think of all 18 things. It's the three dimensions. And that's why I mentioned the practice of teaching. It's about achieving some intellectual rigour or quality, creating quality environments for learning and making learning meaningful. Those three big ideas are not bad guiding principles for achieving good outcomes for all kids. A lot of the time when you do professional development, some colleagues work with this idea of doing action research, the teacher as a, as a researcher. And could you comment on the relationship between your model that you're proposing here and that more kind of traditional idea from the 70s that the, the teacher has to be a researcher and they do different kinds of action research? We hear a lot about clinical practice, and it can mean everything from being in a school. When you read a lot of studies on clinical practice in teaching, all they mean is you're in a school, right through to reflection, and then we have inquiry as stance, which is a bit more encompassing. And then it gets messy, and action research fits somewhere often in that inquiry as stance approach. Um, and because people are talking about the limitations of an inquiry stance or even an action research pro approach, what we're hearing more about more recently is the importance of, of research-informed inquiry, which is where the Bureau stuff fits, or, on the other hand, mentoring and feedback. We've got to get good mentors, we've got to get coaches with, um, you know, a teacher have its earplug in their ear and they're being coached while they're actually practising in the classroom. There's a proliferation of these kinds of approaches as well. I've come to the view, and this is what Jeff and I talked about at BIRA, that with research-informed inquiry, authority lies in scientific knowledge, um, and it privileges a kind of knowledge that teachers can't easily access. It also privileges generalizability, and in a way, arguably, it disempowers teachers if we say it's got to be research-informed. It's like the other quote. On the other hand, if we rely on mentoring and feedback, authority lies in the expert practitioner, the one who knows, who is telling you how to do it better. It privileges experience. And given my data on uh, quality of teaching over years of experience, is experience necessarily um, the, the right arbiter? It privileges local context. And arguably, again, it disempowers teachers if they have to rely on the mentor, the expert. It's like the old apprenticeship model of learning to teach. If we go back to, sorry, one, wrong way, the inquiry as stance, it leaves, sorry, teachers to do it for themselves often. You must have an inquiry stance. But what does that actually mean? What does it look like? It privileges practitioner knowledge and local context, all of which are important, but arguably it disempowers teachers because you've got to make it up yourself. We all reinvent the wheel. What we ended up arguing in this paper, which is half written, is um, that combining research-informed inquiry with mentoring, feedback and clinical kind of inquiry uh, can lead to powerful professional practice, and I guess we'd argue that that's what Quality Teaching Rounds also does. I think it's, as we've been saying for many years, and I actually first started coming to Council of Deans conferences, I think, in 1992, which is pretty scary. Um, but we've been saying forever that if we don't do it, they'll do it to us. And, and we're experiencing the increasing regulation of everything, and some of it's been in collaboration, and um, yeah, there are positive pieces to it. But I think the more that we can create our own powerful evidence, the more that we actually can take the lead in where 
and, and how teacher education goes forward in this country and beyond.